All right, we are back. We mentioned some science topics we wanted to get to, and I have in front of me some excerpts from Smithsonian Magazine, from The Economist, and our favorite scientific publication, New Scientist. Let's begin with Smithsonian's article titled, The Bug That Saved California. The piece by Martin J. Kernan starts out, in the early 1870s, ambitious farmers were cultivating the first seedless navel and sweet Valencia oranges amid the bountiful sunshine of California's citrus groves. Soon, these groves would become the proving grounds for the new science of biological pest control, pitting a rare species of ladybugs against an invading horde of pests in a battle for the future of citrus agriculture in California and the world. Commercial agriculture drove the largest economic expansion in California since the discovery of gold at Sutter's Mill. And oranges, initially brought there by Spanish missionaries, had become California's most valuable commodity. The number of acres under citrus cultivation in Southern California increased sevenfold between 1877 and 1890, while the number of railroad boxcars exporting these juicy treasures doubled to nearly 6,000 a year. Fruit traveling east was now worth $20 million annually, an increase of, by a factor of 10 in as many years. Then the cottony cushion scale, a virulent tree pest native to Australia, got unleashed upon the citrus trees of the world. Its population exploded in New Zealand in 1878. Entomologists there identified it as a new species, Ictera perchassi. By the early 1880s, it was ravaging San Francisco's trees and quickly migrated south, its tiny red larva hitching rides on anything that moved, even the wind. In 1884, Ictera reached Los Angeles, assembling most aggressively on the south side of William Wolfskill's ranch, the first commercial citrus orchard in the state and one of the largest. The ranch had seen various infestations before, but nothing like this. No matter what they tried, washing the trees with whale oil, uh, whale oil, heating them with sheet iron stoves and blistering steam, cutting off and burning infected limbs. The waxy scales continue to infect more and more trees. The article notes there were 600,000 orange trees in California about this time, and the number that succumbed to ICTRA was unknown, but it must have been high. In 1887, the state's citrus export filled 2,000 boxcars. The next year, only 400. In 1887, the deepening crisis prompted Charles Valentine Riley, then 43 and chief of the U.S. Department of Agriculture's Division of Entomology, to dispatch two federal entomologists, Daniel Coquillet and the German board Albert Kobel, to Wolfskill. Their hundreds of pesticide experiments proved that no combination of ingredients could both exterminate Ictera and leave the trees unharmed. Riley mused publicly about discovering Ictera's, quote, natural enemies, unquote. Riley wanted to send a field agent to Australia, where a local entomologist there had recently discovered the only known enemy of Ictera, a parasitic fly. So in August of 1888, Koboli sailed for Australia. He arrived in Sydney on September 1888, and after a spell collecting these crypto flies, he spotted a different insect on October 15th that would change everything. A species of ladybug now known as Novalis cardinalis eating a large Ictera. No one seemed to recognize the value of this discovery. After being notified, Riley wrote Kobley back in reply, We have much more to hope for from the crypto fly. And the crypto flies that Kobley sent to Wolfskill via steamship failed to establish themselves in Southern California. But he had intelligently also included a cache of novius ladybugs. They were turned loose 
on an Ictor-infected orange tree that was kept inside of a tent, and they noticed that they went to work wiping out the scale. Notice the piece. They exhibited an appetite for Ictor unlike that of any other insect in California, including American ladybugs, which are more than twice the size of Novius. After observing these ladybugs devour every Ictor on the orange trees that they were exposed to, they opened up one side of the tent and released the swarming ladybugs onto the plantation. In a mere few weeks, they'd restored every tree at Wolfskill Farm to its pre-infestation health without any negative side effects. Citrus growers throughout Southern California came to Wolfskill with Ictor-infested branches to take ladybugs back home. By the autumn of 1889, California growers were faced with a fresh and almost comical new challenge. They were suddenly scrambling to preserve enough Ictera to keep the ladybugs from cannibalizing themselves. Without Ictera to feed on, these cute but ferocious bugs ate each other, including their own larvae. Anyway, the story has a happy ending. Today, scientists refer to the episode as the first instance of modern biocontrol. In a 1962 classic, Silent Spring, Rachel Carson called the Novius work in California the world's most famous and successful experiment in biological control. This article does make mention of integrated pest management, which is really how things ought to be done. Using biocontrol as much as possible with, you know, minimal use of pesticides, and it depends on the need. We've talked in this show about how it is that... uh, A grower may contract with, say, a canner to spray his field six six times, whether or not an infestation ever shows up. We certainly don't want to run down what was called the world's most successful experiment in biological control, but we just wish that uh, the model could be followed more often. I do note that these little, uh, the picture shows this this small ladybug on the cover, and and I've seen these little, little bugs they are smaller than our native ladybugs and, uh, and have a nice, uh, beautiful red exoskeleton. And no, I can't tell you why it is they weren't busy cannibalizing each other out of existence. All I know is I've, I've, I've seen these things. And in a less successful example of biocontrol, we have an article from The Economist noting that it may be that part of the woes of our bee population has to do with the fact that Well, we bred a kind of bee that is just less resistant to some of these diseases. Now, we do know that these varroa mites, which are tiny little creatures, much smaller than than a bee, are able to climb on board the bee and ride around and infect it. The article notes that a crucial factor in, in this plague of mites, at least in the opinion of two researchers, is that the substance called propolis, which is a sticky mixture that bees make from a mixture of wax and resins that they gather from a wide variety of plants. They use propolis to coat the inner walls of their hives and to plug holes in the hive walls that might otherwise admit predators and to encase the bodies of those intruders which do manage to breach the wall. The evidence is mounting that propolis serves as more than just a building and embalming material. The evidence indicates that it has antimicrobial properties, which helps the bees fend off a range of dangerous diseases. But, notes the article, microbicides are not necessarily arachnicides. So there was no obvious reason to suspect that propolis would be effective against mites as well. Until, in 2017, a team led by Dr. Sada made the curious finding that hives invaded by Varroa responded by sending out more forages than usual to collect plant resins. Since the only known use bees have for these resins is making propolis, that suggested to the doctors that the hives in question were employing the stuff to infite their infestations. After studying the matter, they found that this propolis, which apparently contains a lot of phenol, which is, you know, a 
perfectly good disinfectant, that, uh, well, the mites didn't like it. Anyway, the studies show that the stuff uh, was very much disliked by the mites. Mites that got exposed to some of the chemicals in propolis went on to reproduce only 26% of the time, whereas 46% of the surviving mites in the chemical-free cell were able to reproduce. So, how come this is happening? And the article notes it seems pretty clear that propolis helps protect against varroa infestations, but why don't bees make more use of it in their brood cells? Well, possible answer is the ability to do so has been bred out of them. Until the revelation about its antimicrobial properties, beekeepers saw propolis as nothing but a nuisance, in particular when hives with removable frames for the easier, easier collection of honey were introduced in the mid-19th century. Bees retaliated to this enhanced pillaging by pasting propolis over those frames, making them harder to extract. To counter this behavior, generations of beekeepers have favored colonies that produce less of the stuff. As a result, modern bees are fairly economical with its manufacture and deployment. Anyway, they may need to do some better bee breeding in the future to see if they can't uh, make better use of this, um, this product, which the bees have been using, and that we apparently bred out of them. Now, this year in California, we we're having a wet winter, so far anyway, with, with uh, precipitation ahead of what it's been lately. Of course, lately it's been horrible drought conditions. This inevitably brings us the threat of mosquitoes. And, of course, with mosquitoes, you get mosquito-borne illness. And one of the standard methods that have been used to fight mosquitoes have been mosquito fish. Well, I did not realize that nearly a half century after the finger-sized fish was first introduced into California... It is arguably the most ubiquitous freshwater fish in the world. Unfortunately, it also ranks among the world's worst invasive species. Balancing the pest control prowess and ecological destruction of the fish, nearly every mosquito vector control district in California is now deploying the creature with varying strategies. This all comes from a Mercury News article, by the way, by Zach Zavitsky. This does remind us, Mr. Miller, we need to bring Dan Bacher back in here to talk about the Delta smelt and, and fish in California in general. He is quite a local authority. Anyway, I was very disturbed to learn that uh, when people were looking out in nature, places where they put mosquito fish to eat mosquito larvae, which they do voraciously, they also found that um, the fish apparently were eating the larvae of Santa Cruz long-toed salamanders, a federal endangered species on the brink of extinction. The article also makes reference to the Sacramento Yolo County Mosquito Abatement District, responsible for treating mosquito threats in more than 13,000 acres of rice fields, where shallow waters create fertile insect breeding grounds near dense residential areas. Hey, I got an idea. Why don't we grow monsoon crops out where there's monsoons instead of like out near the Sacramento Yolo border? Anyway, there's no doubt if you eat mosquito larvae, so they don't have adult, adult mosquitoes, you're going to have less um, mosquito-borne disease. But uh, we now know there's going to be a cost in terms of local biodiversity. It just needs some balance. Here's an article from The Economist that's sort of blowing my mind. It turns out that you can sniff DNA from the air. This is uh, news to people. Now, it's always been known that you can you know, extract DNA from things like feces to determine what animals are in your environment, but apparently you can filter air and extract the DNA from it, and you can then match the DNA to determine what animal species are around. This, this sounds far-fetched, but apparently researchers in Canada went down to the zoo, used some of these devices to trap the air, 
and uh, were able to identify the animals in the zoo. And not only that, it apparently picked up the DNA, if you can believe this, from species that are just in the environment, like red squirrels, hares, brown rats, and domestic cats. And of course, if this, if this can be done, if you can pull DNA out of the air and identify different animals, will it be possible to identify, say, a suspect in a crime? I don't know, but this is, this is amazing. Also something we find amazing is the fact that um, they are now using phages, which are bacteria-killing viruses, to clean up our food supply. Notes the Insight section of New Scientist magazine. Bacteria-killing viruses, called bacteriophages, are increasingly being used to destroy harmful microbes during food processing or stop food rotting and to treat plant and animal diseases on farms. One big advantage of this approach is that phages can kill bacteria that have become resistant to antibiotics or disinfectants. Bacteriophages are everywhere. There are an estimated 10 to the 31st phages on planet Earth, more than every other kind of biological entity combined. Your gut alone is thought to hold 10 to the 15th power. Given their multitudes, it's no surprise people have wanted to put them to work. Phages have been used to treat human infections since the 1920s, when the Alavia Phage Therapy Center in Tbilisi, Georgia was set up, and it still treats people today. But phage therapy is seldom used anywhere else. It's much easier to prescribe antibiotics than to find a phage capable of killing a specific bacterium infecting a person. But when it comes to food, it's a different matter. Phages are increasingly being used in some countries to kill bacteria that cause food poisoning. The main targets are salmonella, shigella, and strains of E. coli, and in addition, listeria monocytogenes. These bacteria can lurk on fresh foods like salads and can also contaminate the surface of foods after cooking. There's no perfect way to get rid of them. Ionizing radiation is very effective, but it can alter the taste, texture, and look of food. When using phages, the usual approach is to spray a fine mist containing them over the food. This can be highly effective in killing unwanted bacteria. Numerous studies show that it can reduce bacterial numbers by orders of magnitude sometimes to the point of undetectability. Seems like a pretty good idea. And you really can't say, oh, God, I don't want to have food with bacteriophages all over it because you're eating that now. And here's an article that I've been wanting to, uh, to delve into, but it's, it's, a, it's a little complex, maybe tough to explain, but let's give it a whack. Many years ago in this program, we talked about mad cow disease, which is caused by an infectious protein. When I was in medical school, they just could not believe that what were then called slow viruses could possibly um, be anything other than a disease spread by RNA or DNA because, well, that's behind every other infectious organism known to man, at least it was till then. But the evidence kept coming in that no, there was no genetic material in these infectious agents. They were composed only of protein. Researcher Stanley Preusner kept saying this was the case, and he kept being made fun of, but you know what? In the end, he's the guy that won the Nobel Prize. Now, it turned out that research was being done on these proteins called prions because they would go rogue. They would, um, they would fold up in a certain way. They would cause fibrils. They would cause tangles, and it would cause damage to the brains of animals, including humans. What the article in New Scientist by Michael Brahek notes is that what nobody predicted was the existence of good prions. We now know, notes the piece, that prions emerged early 
in the evolution of life and play essential biological roles from giving yeasts the ability to rapidly adapt to allowing you to form long-term memory. Now, you may remember being taught in biology class that the sequence of DNA, the genetic material that uh, contains the coding that which life depends upon, gets made into messenger RNA, and then other types of RNA and protein get together to string together amino acids to make proteins. I'm sorry if that's confusing. But the basic biologic train of thought is DNA goes to RNA, and then RNA gets transcribed or rewritten into an amino acid sequence, and that's how you have proteins. What you may have been taught, and what I certainly was taught, was that the sequence of these amino acids as they're strung together determine how the protein folds up. And how the protein folds up determines how it works. Because what enzymes do is speed up chemical reactions. A reaction that may take place over 10 years will all of a sudden take place in the blink of an eye. Because the enzyme brings together the two elements that need to connect up and helps them connect up. But the impression I always got back in biochemistry was that, uh, well, to quote from the article, the chain of amino acids that makes up any given protein must fold in a precise way to give the protein its shape and function. But there's more to the story. Prions belong to a group called intrinsically disordered proteins, which cannot do this unless they're bound to a specific partner. Until then, they fold and unfold into thousands of unstable intermediate forms lasting just a millisecond each. But wouldn't you know it, sometimes these protons have an alternative way to fold into a stable form. And that stable form then induces the other unstable proteins to join it and form what are described as thread-like fibrils. Now, when this protein folding goes astray, our cells are equipped with quality control systems. Under normal circumstances, misfolded proteins are either unfolded and correctly refolded or just degraded, torn up. And this is what usually happens when prions form. But the control system sometimes amplifies the problem by fragmenting the fibrils to create smaller seeds from which more can grow. This, it is thought, is how prions spread from cell to cell like an infectious agent. As scientists continued to study this, however, it became increasingly apparent that prions aren't only responsible for disease. Researchers have focused on the brain, where these prions have been known to do damage in the past, but it turns out that there's prion diseases outside the brain. And there's one sentence here that takes me aback. It says, type 2 diabetes is one example. To which I say, really? Type 2 diabetes is a prion disease? You know more about that. In fact, we need to know a lot more about prions. The article notes that an intriguing discovery about them is that they are evolutionarily ancient. Proteins with the capacity to fold into two functionally distinctive configurations, one of which is self-perpetuating, have been found in all branches of life, and they even occur in viruses. Now, <laughs> this raises some questions. The fact that these have survived and proliferated raises the question of whether prions might confer an evolutionary advantage. And in recent years, experiments have proven that, in yeast anyway, they do. And let's do some more basic biology here. Notes the article. A key challenge for life is to adapt to changing environments. Adaptation can occur genetically as a result of random mutations, followed by natural selection, 
oh, for those fitter genes. But that's a slow process, even for fast-dividing organisms like yeast. Moreover, if the environment reverts to its original state, the mutation must be reversed. Turns out that prion proteins offer a fast alternative. Studies reveal that changes in a yeast environment, such as the presence of different nutrients, induce a prion protein to switch to an alternative form that helps the yeast exploit the new food source. What's more, that adaptation is passed on to all the organism's progeny in a unique non-genetic type of inheritance. Yes, a non-genetic type of inheritance. And here's the thought problem that kind of delves into this. Notes the piece. Imagine a yeast cell with a trait due to a protein that can turn into a prion, so altering that trait. If that cell is then crossed with another yeast with the original protein, all the progeny will receive some prions. These prion proteins will change the regular proteins into the prion form. As a result, all the progeny will exhibit the new trait. This was called protein-based inheritance. At least it was so hypothesized back in 1994 by Reed Wickner at the U.S. National Institutes of Health. And it turns out, Reed Wickner was correct. Soon after he proposed this idea, he and his colleagues reported experiments showing that prion proteins are indeed responsible for the non-Mendelian traits observed in yeasts and mushrooms. In other words, not the normal means of inheritance. And here's the one paragraph summary to the whole piece that just, I'm sorry, this does blow my mind a little bit. Here's the paragraph. The conclusion was shocking but inescapable. DNA isn't the only molecule responsible for heredity. In fact, protein-based inheritance isn't even a rarity. It has now been uncovered in all domains of life. At this point, I just have to quote Huell Hauser and say, that's amazing. And if you don't think it's amazing, it's because I've failed miserably to convey to you how amazing it really is. But I may take a whack at it in the future because it's a tough one to explain in simple terms. And I skipped over the part about how prions apparently play a role in memory formation. It's a big topic. I may need to take, just to take, take a second whack at it. And to end this segment with a not exactly science topic, but one we talked about before when Mr. Millen and I referred to a movie we'd seen advertised in a local theater titled Toilet. And we have a write-up in the Uncle John's Bathroom Reader series, which, frankly, we cannot resist. They gave it a review under the Uncle John's Stall of Fame, noting that ordinarily, when a filmmaker says their movie is in the can, they mean it's finished. But in the case of the Indian film Toilet, a love story in the can means something else entirely. Now, obviously, the claim to fame of this movie is it is a feature film calling attention to one of India's biggest sanitation problems, lack of available toilets. Turns out that more than 1.3 billion people live in India, and according to one United Nations estimate, 564 million of them do not have access to a toilet and must relieve themselves out in the open. Anyway, apparently Sri Narayan Singh tackled this issue in Toilet, A Love Story. The film is based on a true story. Ashke Kumar plays Keshav, a man who falls in love with a woman named Jaya, played by Bhumi Panekar. Jaya was raised in a home with a toilet. But after she marries Keshav and returns to the home that he shares with his parents, she's shocked to discover they do not have a toilet. 
At 4 a.m., she's woken up by the women of the village who invite her to accompany them out to the countryside to relieve themselves in mass. She goes with them, but can't work up the nerve to do her business in that fashion. Afterwards, she returns home, and after arguing with her husband, she moves back in with her parents and tells Kishab she will not return to live with him until he builds her a bathroom. Oh, that's such an American express bathroom. What she wants is a toilet. Notes the article, Kishab's father objects to building a bathroom in the front courtyard of their house, saying, how can we build a toilet in the same courtyard where we worship? It's a good question, really. Apparently, when Kishab builds one anyway, his father and friends start tearing the building down while he's asleep, and he wakes up in time to stop them from destroying it completely. And under the headline, spoiler alert, and we do have to say that if you're intending to see Toilet a Love Story, you may want to not listen for the next minute. Because it turns out, though Jaya loves her husband, she resigns herself to the fact that he will never be able to build her a toilet, so she files for divorce. Not long afterwards, Kishab's mother slips and falls one morning while on her way out to relieve herself. Her injury prevents herself from joining the other women on their morning ritual, which leaves Kishab's father with no choice but to assist his wife in using the damaged but still functioning bathroom out in the courtyard. This experience teaches him the value of having a bathroom in the home. He permits Kishab to repair the toilet. Jaya calls off her divorce, and everyone lives happily ever after. Now, we do want to note that Toilet, a Love Story, wasn't exactly a darling with the critics. One reviewer wrote, Ashutai's Kumar film stinks to high heaven. <laughs> but it turns out Indian filmgoers loved it. It grossed more than $33 million, which is blockbuster numbers for a Bollywood film. For Ashley Kumar, one of Bollywood's biggest stars and a celebrity ambassador for the Indian government's Clean India campaign to build 45 million new public toilets, the impressive box office receipts are beside the point. He told the LA Times, I don't know how many people will watch the film, but even if 5% helped build toilets, I will feel my film is successful. Now, when we first mentioned this movie, uh, I think it was a couple years back, we, we vowed that we were going to try and track it down and watch it. We've still not yet done so. Ms. McMillan, make a note of that. I will. I'll put it on the list with Pootie Tank. I guess that prompts my closing with the fact that I was talking to a friend recently who had listened to one of our programs. She asked if I had any plans for the next couple days. I, I said I really didn't. She suggested at that point that I might want to get liquored up and watch Pootie Tang, which is something we whimsically suggested we might do one of these days. And although that remains true, I'd have to clarify that one of these days probably is some, cl something closer to when hell freezes over. That pretty much does it for today's show. This program was produced by Edward McMillan. This has been Radio Parallax. I'm Douglas Everett. We'll see you next week, hopefully with Greg Palast.